We're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1021. title of the message this morning is, In It, But Not Of It. Let's go to God's word together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Please pay attention for the reading of God's holy word. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you probably didn't have to grow up in the church to know what it means to be a good Christian. You don't dance, you don't go to the movies, and you definitely don't play cards. Or as the little jingle goes, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. You might chuckle at this little rhyme, Or you might shake your head in disbelief that some Christians believe that things like dancing and going to the movies and cards are off-limits for Christians. But if we're honest, as followers of Christ, we've all felt this tension of what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. And while we should honor the convictions of our brothers and sisters in Christ in some of these different areas, we must peel back the layers and ask, What is the real motivation to so-called godly living? We've been in 1 John, and we've already seen how John has gone after these false teachers who are not only teaching things about Jesus that undermined his humanity, which affect our belief in the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, and also his deity, that he was God, that he died for us, atoned for our sins, But they were also teaching some form of early Gnosticism, which was this idea that separated the body, which was they viewed as evil, from the spirit, which was viewed as good. And as we've mentioned, we don't know exactly what they were teaching in this time. It was kind of an earlier form of Gnosticism, which didn't really fully form kind of until the next century. But it would have gone something like this. John's opponents would have said, we have a special knowledge of God. And we are in the light because of this special knowledge. And we don't have sin anymore. We don't don't have sin, and we don't even commit sins anymore. But John went after those claims in the first half of chapter 2, which we've seen in the last couple weeks, by his saying, whoever says. So these whoever says statements are addressed to the Christians in the church, but they're actually talking about those who are making these claims. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, must walk in the same way in which he walked. And whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. This idea of of loving our brother, we've seen the last couple weeks, Jesus command in John 13, a new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says, this is how the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. So this is what it means to be a good Christian, to love God and to love one another. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we live. It actually matters tremendously how we live. But the question is, where does the motivation come from, and what is the foundation? We talked a couple weeks weeks ago about grace-fueled obedience. We obey God because of what he has already done for us in Christ. We don't obey God to try to earn his favor, to try to earn his love. We obey him joyfully because of what he has done. In the same way as grace must fuel our obedience, love for God must fuel our obedience. Otherwise, if we do the right thing without love for God, it's just dead, cold moralism, which is horrible. There's two reasons why dead, cold moralism is horrible. Moralism, trying to earn God's love, trying to earn our salvation by being good. Two reasons. The first is that it is crushing to our own souls. It is a crushing burden to our own souls to try to please God, to try to earn God's favor by doing good things, by trying to be good enough. Because if you try to earn God's favor in that way, you will fall short every single time. And it will crush your soul. The second reason that it's horrible is that it's a stench to the world. The message is just, I'm better than you. And we can add that to the end of our little jingle, right? I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do, and I'm better than you, right? The world doesn't need more moralistic Christians, It doesn't need a moralistic gospel that just tells people, if you just do the right thing, if you just be a good person, then you'll get to heaven. That is a false gospel. And Jesus wouldn't have any of it. And John, who walked with Jesus for his entire earthly ministry, he won't have any of it either. If you're taking notes, the main question we're going to look at this morning and unpack, how do we love God And do the will of God while remaining in the world. How do we love God and do the will of God while remaining in the world? How can we be in it but not of it? Speaking of the world. And this is a tension that we all live with, isn't it? Being in the world but not of the world. I remember as a new Christian really wrestling with this, right? I had so many things in my life that was just, I just did and doing in the world, and then I become a Christian, and it's like, whoa, what, is, like, what does it look like to stop doing certain things, and what is my motivation for doing these certain things, and I'm, I'm in this new crowd of people now who are seeking to live for God, but I'm still friends with all of these people, and I'm trying to witness to them, and it just, 
There's a lot of tension there, and it's really hard. So we're going to explore a little bit this tension that we face as we unpack these three verses. And I want us to see that it's so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's fundamentally a heart issue. It's a heart issue from beginning to end. So let's go to our text. We've already read it. Let's see how John walks us through this tension. As we do that, we need to do a little bit of work to set this up. We need to look at some context clues, and we need to look at a few words. We need to define a few words. So I want to start off with a simple grammar observation, okay? We need to observe John's mood here. I'm not talking about whether John is happy or sad. I'm talking about his grammatical mood. It's a way that a speaker expresses their attitude towards things that they're talking about. If you remember back to, back to learning English in school, some of the moods are the indicative mood, the interrogative mood, asking questions, or the imperative mood, giving commands. We like to talk a lot about the indicative and the imperative and, it's, and why it's important to get the relationship between the indicative and the imperative right. Now, the indicative is the mood of just what is. It's the mood of reality. It's the present mood. And the imperative is the mood of the command. It's the mood of telling someone what they should do. So what mood has John been writing in up until this point? Except a few, there's a few exceptions. He uses this subjunctive mood a couple times. But almost all of the verbs, almost all the things John has been saying up until this point are the indicative mood. He's just saying what is. He's telling us what is true. And his main statement so far, his main argument is that God is light. Okay? Is is the best indicative verb. It just says what is. Okay? God is light. All of the arguments that John has been making about us being in the light, not being in the darkness, all, sur- all come from that idea that God is light. So that's the foundation of, of everything he said so far. And now we come to our first imperative. This is the first time that John has given us a command in a whole chapter and a half. For the first time that he's going to tell us to do something. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, can you imagine if John would have started off his letter with this command? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, why in the world did John not start with that? Because what would we have done? All right, tell me what I have to, give me the list, right? Tell me what I have to do to be a good Christian. Instead, he spent a whole chapter and a half telling us who God is. And what God has done for us in Christ. So that when he gets to the imperative, we're like, okay, I know why I should be doing this, right? Because of who I am in Christ. Because of what God has already done. He doesn't start that off without telling us, without telling us who God is. Without describing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Without telling us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Without the promise that the word of God abides in us and that we have overcome the evil one. John sets us up well with all of these indicatives, these truths about who God is. 
and gets us to our first command here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Next question we need to ask is, what does John mean here by the world? Didn't God so love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Yes. And do you know who wrote that? John wrote that, okay? So we need to do some work here, right? What does he mean here by the world? Well, in the New Testament and in John's writing, there's three main meanings of the world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. You can probably guess where this is going, right? It's where we get the word cosmos from, okay? Pretty simple, pretty, pretty easy transliteration there. It's the created world, right? That's the first meaning. It's just everything that God has created. It's the world in general. It's, it's what God has created. The second meaning is the people of the world. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world, the people of the world. 1 John 2.2, we already saw where it says that Jesus was a propitiation for the sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. That's the only meaning that can make sense there. Jesus didn't die for the sun and the moon and the stars, the created world. That, That can't make sense. And then the third meaning is the system of the world and the things that that system produces. One commentator describes it like this. The life of human society is organized under the power of evil. And for John, every time he uses the world in this way, it's always negative. It's always speaking of this system, this world system that's organized under the power of evil. So we need, to, we need to understand, that's what John is talking about here when he says, do not love the world. He's talking about the world system that is organized under the power of evil. Then the last word that we need to define here is love. There are several words in the Greek for love. This is the verb form of the, the word agape. It's active, self-giving love, not self-seeking love. It's the ultimate expression of devotion, dedication, and affection. If you're familiar with with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's that type of love. So John's main command here then is that all of our devotion and our dedication and our affection must be directed towards God and not towards the world. We must love God and not the world. She says in the second half of the verse, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, or also can be translated the love for the Father, is not in him. James, in James 4.4, explained the same thing, and he did not mince words. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That doesn't sound very nice to our 21st century ears, does it? But John is going to give us two reasons in verses 16 and 17 why this is true. Why we can't have it both ways. Why we can't love God and the world at the same time. The first thing, all that is in the world... Verse 16, let's, let's skip 
what's in, the, in between the dashes. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, we need to understand here that the world cannot be definition one, the cosmos, or the people of the world. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. The cosmos are from the Father. The people in the world are from the Father. He created them. So this has to be speaking here about the world system and the things that come from the world. These things are not from the Father. Well, what are these things? John lists three of them in the middle of verse 16, in between the dashes here. The first is desires of the flesh. This is the internal temptations, the things in our heart that are a result of the fall, that are a result of original sin. Things in our hearts like lust and envy and covetousness, these desires of the flesh. And there's a strong overlap here with what Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5 in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about the works or the desires of the flesh, things that are opposed to the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, 13, God says, or Paul says that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. So there is this battle going on. There is this war going on between the flesh and the spirit. And as we saw last week in this this battle that we're in, this battle against evil and against darkness, we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are called to kill these things, the desires of the flesh, by the power of the spirit. The second thing he lists is the desires of the eyes. These are the external temptations. These are the things we see where those internal temptations temptations, they latch on and they grab on to these things. So an example is covetousness. Now we can have covetousness, we can covet other people's things just in our heart without any external temptation, but when you see someone, when you see the things that they have, this is where the desires, desire of the eyes comes in and it, it takes that heart temptation and it latches on to something that we see and there's a combination of the, those two things that makes the temptation that much stronger. The third thing is the pride of life. And this kind of interesting translation here in these words, uh, some of the more uh, looser translations kind of get at this idea a little bit better of what this means. Some of them say the boasting in what he has and does. This idea of pride here is boasting in our possessions, boasting in the things that we have, or the pride in our achievements and our possessions. This is basically saying, I'm better than you because of the things that I have. I'm better than you because of what I have accumulated and what I have accomplished in my life. For our men's time, uh, we have been reading through a book called Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. And the last two times that we've, been met, that we've met, we've been in section two of that book where he talks about the special dangers for young men. And there are five things that he talks about as as special dangers. There are things he warns young men about. And the first two are pride and love of pleasure, which are very much connected here with what we see in 1 John. 
Listen to what Ryle says. Listen to the warning that he gives to young men. If you would cleave to earthly pleasures, these are the things which murder souls. There is no surer way to get a seared conscience and a hard and penitent heart than to give way to the desires of the flesh and mind. It seems nothing at first, but it tells in the long run. Murder souls? Really? Isn't that a little bit harsh? But doesn't John also warn us that our souls are at stake in the battle between love for God and love for the world? Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, John is saying, Christian, do not love the world because it is temporal. It's not going to be here forever. Christian, you are in the light, remember? And the darkness in which you once walked is passing away as well. Do you want to know how you can live forever? Do the will of God and abide or remain or live forever. So I want to attempt now to answer our main question. How do we love God and do the will of God while remaining in the world? I want to give us four things for practical application. The first one is love God and love your own soul more than you love the world and the things in the world. Love God and love your own soul more than you love the world and the things in the world. And a couple just practical questions to ask, some good things to ask. How am I spending my three T's? My time, my treasure, and my talents. How am I spending my time? Am I engaging in corporate worship with God's people? And am I engaging in private worship? Worshiping the Lord, singing his praises, spending time in prayer, spending time reading the scriptures. Not in order to just check off a box and say, I did my duty for the day. Not a to-do list, but to live a life of worship of our Lord. Second, treasures. How am I spending my money? Am I spending it selfishly or selflessly? Am I a cheerful giver? And I'm not just saying you need to give more money to the church. Are you being generous in general with your money? Or are you living selfishly with your money? And related to that, your talents. How am I using the gifts that God has given me? Am I using them to serve myself? Or am I using them to serve others? Remember that our love for God is seen in our love for one another. As you think about your time and your treasure and your talents, are they self-focused or are they God-focused and others-focused? Okay, that's the first one. Second, remember that the world doesn't love you. 
The world doesn't love you. Jesus said in John 15, 18, and 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you belong to Jesus, you should rejoice in the fact that the world hates you. You don't belong to the world, and the world doesn't want you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm not saying that if you're a part of the world, that means that you're just a Christian hater. But if you don't belong to Jesus, you belong to a world system that hates Christians. And you might think the world system loves you and cares for you, but it actually really hates you too. It wants to devour you. It wants to eat you up. It wants to chew you up and spit you out. Right? The world system doesn't love you and doesn't care about you. Jesus offers you new life. Jesus offers you forgiveness. And if you have not tasted that, if you have not known what it means to to live for God, to walk in the light, to be a new creation in Christ, I would love to talk with you about that. I would love to share with you about what it means to trust Jesus, to be a Christian, to walk with him. And, And for all of us who are, we're all wrestling at different points. What does it mean to be in the world and not of it? We all struggle with these things, and this is why we walk together. This is why we we wrestle through these things. It's why we seek God together. Third, don't be an uncritical observer of the world system. Don't be an uncritical observer of the world system. Okay, I'm not advocating for not going to the theater, right? No movies, no secular music, etc., etc., But when you watch TV, when you watch movies, when you listen to music, be aware of what is being communicated to you. There is no neutrality, okay? Everyone has an agenda. Everyone's trying to communicate something to you. If you listen to Christian music, they're trying to communicate something to you. Hopefully it's good. Hopefully it's in line with what we believe, right? We all have an agenda. We're all trying to to communicate something, and to get people to buy into something. Don't be an uncritical observer. There are so many messages in our culture that are getting stronger and stronger and more in our face, and we need to be aware of those things. We need to be able to step back and analyze those things. So again, I'm not arguing for us to unplug and to disengage but that we engage with a critical eye and a critical ear for what the world wants us to believe and to buy into. Young people, okay, especially kids, young people, be aware of this. Everyone is after your allegiance. The world is after your allegiance. Don't give it to them, okay? Give your allegiance to God to your Father who loves you and will care for you. Do not give your allegiance to the world. Parents, 
Be diligent about these things with your kids. When you see some crazy message in a commercial or some subtle message that your kids don't understand, explain it to them. I'm not saying you just need to bash everything that's out there all the time, but help them to see, hey, this is what they're trying to communicate. This is what they're trying to get you to buy into. And you need to be a critical observer of these things. You need to understand what's going on around you. Everyone else and, and those I've already addressed. Arm yourselves with the truth of God's word. Pray and ask God for wisdom and discernment to not be led astray by the world and the things that are in the world. And finally, offer to the world a meaningful and attractive alternative to the darkness by meaningful cultural engagement. Offer to the world a meaningful and attractive alternative to the darkness by meaningful cultural engagement. As Christians, we are called to be salt and light in this world. In other words, we are to have a positive effect on those around us, on the world around us, and on the institutions of the world around us. It's not our job to change the institutions. It's not our job to to change the world system because we're not going to do that, but we need to engage it thoughtfully, and we need to engage it in a way that is meaningful, to be salt and light. What does salt do? It preserves, and it adds a flavorful distinction. Are you being salty in your relationships, and not salty like grouchy salty? Are you being salty in your relationships. Now sometimes this doesn't even mean, you know, opening your, opening your mouth and sharing the gospel every chance you get. But are people seeing a difference in you? Are people seeing like, why doesn't this person engage in this system, engage in the world in the way that I do, right? People should see a difference. And light Light is meant to shine and to expose the darkness, to give hope to those around us without hope. So are you being the light of Christ in the darkness around you? This is not a call to just change the world through do-goodism, right? It's not a call to just be a better Christian and then all these people are all of a sudden going to trust Jesus. But it's a call to self-giving to self-sacrificing love for God and for others. For a call to love him first because he first loved us. And to trusting him to guide us as we walk this walk, as we walk this tension of being in the world but not of the world. By his grace, may that be true of us. May we love God. May we live in this world but not be of it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this first command here that we have in 1 John, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel difficult. But God, we do not come to this command. We we do not try to live out this command on our own strength. 
I pray that it, is, that it would be by the power of your spirit that we would put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we might live. That we, it would be by the power of your spirit and the motivation of your grace and your love that we would live lives in this world that are distinct. That we would be salt and light to those around us. That the world would see that we are your disciples because of our love for one another. God, that we would be mindful of the choices we make, that we would be mindful of the temptations around us so that we would walk in the light, so that we would be protected by you, that we would be protected by your spirit as we engage, as we fight the good fight. God, send us out from here to be your ambassadors, to show the world around us that there is a better hope, that there is a promise of doing your will and abiding forever. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.